0: listening to Pythagoras's Trousers. Well time for some astronomy now with me Chris North and me Edward Gomez. We'll start off in the solar system I think we've got a, a large number of spacecraft going around the solar system but we've got uh, two that are worth talking about uh, at the moment. One is Cassini that's uh, been orbiting Saturn for a long time now since 2004. Yeah
1: I remember watching the TV feed from when it went into orbit.
0: Yeah uh, it's, it's been there a long time and it's come to the end of its mission. So 2017 is the end of its mission. It's going to be crashed into Saturn. Um, but to do that, they've got to send it into a polar orbit. So long, long, um, looping up over North Pole and South Pole. It's just started doing that. And in doing so, it also gets very, very close to the edge of the rings. So it's going to, what they're calling it, ring grazing orbit It's going to graze past. I mean, OK, within a few thousand kilometres, but still there's cool. still going to be stuff out yeah. there. It's going to be eroded. It is so they they are far enough away from what's called the F ring, the, the the outermost main ring, which is actually very narrow. Yeah. So they're they're fairly confident they're away from major bits of dust. It, the spacecraft like, do get bomb- do get hit by things. They do feel the the motion, for example. Um. So hopefully not uh, damaged um, by anything. Uh. But those images we get from those ring grazing orbits and looking at some of the tiny moons around Saturn, the ones that are a few kilometres across. Yeah. Um.
1: And the shepherd moons as well. That are, yeah. there are these moons that are inside the rings.
0: Yeah, they have weird features. So they call them um, propellers sometimes in the main ring, one of the main rings, because uh, they have a, an airplane propeller type structure. As the, the moons go around inside the rings, and they they create these little structures. they start to naming them as well. The long lasting ones. So there's an air heart, I know, uh-huh. uh, after a media, after yeah. aviators, of course. Um, so those are going to be fascinating uh, images mm. uh, to see um, as as Cassini ends its its final phase of its uh, of its mission. And the other spacecraft out there is was Juno around Jupiter, of course. Um, that's uh, stuck in a long duration orbit so its thrusters didn't fire properly, um, which is never good. Um, but it's stuck in a 53 day orbit, so it's a couple of months to go round its loops rather than its shorter uh, 14 week orbit sorry 14 day orbit uh, and they're just investigating a thruster problem. Um, so I we'll have to. Hopefully, it'll get and be able to do its science faster and avoid eclipses. And so,
1: is that going to be a software problem or is that a hardware problem?
0: They think it's a hardware problem. So they have some to pressurize the fuel in the thrusters. They use helium, and the valves that open should open in a couple of a few seconds to pressurize the helium system. And it took them a few minutes to open. Um, I guess the worry is that then they don't close properly, and then you end up with f- fuel and valves not closing. is a bad idea. Yeah. Um,
1: and you, you have all sorts of problems in in space because it's obviously it's, it's very cold, so you get things welding. Yeah. which wouldn't normally well just because of uh, the extreme conditions out in
0: space. Well, there's another satellite, um, as an I think it was an Intel satellite, there's another satellite in Earth orbit that uses the same thruster system that also had a problem. Um, now, the one on Earth orbit um, is, is, well, it might not be serviceable, but it's somewhat easier to, to deal with yeah. than Juno, um, which is a you know best part of a, a billion kilometres away. Um, so Juno, does, there's nothing immediately stopping it um from from working, I mean it, it will stay on it, will get very close to Jupiter still um, as it's always done um, get within thousands of kilometers of the cloud tops, which is which is amazing stuff to do, won't do it as often and they need to change their orbit by um, I think 2019 is when it starts going to eclipses in its current orbit and uh, when you're going to eclipse out there you get very cold and yeah. things really do freeze. Uh, so they've got to sort that out. But then closer to Earth in the solar system, we've got Mars, of course. Uh, and there's an interesting story uh, comparing Mars and Earth.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, we obviously Mars is the focus of a lot of attention because we have rovers going across uh, the surface of Mars, and a, a lot of people are looking for life on Mars, and or looking for not life like an alien living on the surface of Mars, but biosignatures, so the remains of some sort of. Uh, microbial life probably yeah. some bacterial life that existed once ago in the, the dim distant past of mars when it had water flowing on the surface and it had some sort of magnetic field and an atmosphere um <clears throat> and uh the uh i think it was the spirit rover has been digging around on the surface of mars and found some silicate and the way that they'd formed looked like the way that silicon and silicates has formed in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and in a very, very dry region of Chile. And those are uh, not just uh, geological features. They were actually, the way that they were formed was a biosignature. So they are the remains of life when they were found on the Earth. And so uh, some scientists have compared those those silicates In Chile with the silicates that are on Mars and they look very very similar in the way that they're constructed so uh, it's it's not a smoking gun but it's still a very very interesting pointer could this be a biosignature of something uh,
0: that's gone extinct that was on the surface of Mars we we have seen this before there was the in the was it 1996 the, uh, there was a meteorite that had what was sort of be worm like structures, uh, tiny tiny worm like structures, in there it was an ALH nine six zero zero one or something like that. Um, <laughs> I can't uh, believe you remember that. <laughs> it was something like that. I can't remember. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> um, and and those turned out to be false
1: alarms. So. They did, yeah. And that was uh, I, I can't remember if that was contamination of the sample or whether that was that uh, just because they looked with a, a very very detailed microscope, a scanning electron mm. microscope and uh they the structures are the same sort of structures that you always see Mm. um so that was yeah that turned out to be a red herring
0: yeah so whether whether this one um proves to be uh you know as you say it it's a signature it it might be a useful signature for there being life or it might be a signature of actually 10 different things one of which is sometimes exactly yeah
1: and you know in science it's very difficult to prove something it's but it's a lot easier to disprove something. So I suspect we'll find out relatively soon whether we can uh, count this out or whether you know we need to investigate more.
0: Mm, interesting times. Moving further away from Earth, uh, we've got some stuff uh, involving stars. So first of all, you know, what do we call stars? They have all sorts of names. Um,
1: yeah, some of them have long, boring barcode type names and others yeah. have rather nice names. And, and
0: there's also in between there's the, what's called the Bayer designations, which are the ones that are called Alpha Orionis and Beta Orionis for the, the the brightest stars in various constellations. Lots of different ways of calling them. But the International Astronomical Union, which is the international body that, essentially decides what things are names, planets and moons and asteroids, decides what their names, has started saying we have a list of star names uh, that everyone can now agree on, which can be as simple as just the spelling uh, of the name, um, which can be uh, which can be difficult. So uh, a case in point is Proxima Centauri. We've been talking about that over recent months because a, a, a planet has been discovered going around Proxima Centauri. It's the nearest star. But only now have we got actually, no, this is the official name. Um, so this will hopefully... Um, maybe clear up some confusions in the future perhaps
1: yeah and it, it it is good to be able to refer to some things by shorter names and more memorable names than i mean that's uh so calling alpha centauri c proxima centauri is you know nicer mm-hmm. we've been doing it for a long time but when you've got hd 113679 uh and you call that by you know a different name mm. uh bob yeah. um then I don't think that's a real designation, no. uh, but that is a lot easier to remember. Certainly, if that particular object has some significance, like with Proxima Centauri, now has a planet around it. And yeah. um, the Ast- International Astronomical Union, about a year ago, launched a, uh, a competition where they were inviting people to name uh, planets and planetary extra solar uh, planets and planetary systems. And so there are quite a lot of those which instead of being called Um, 55 Cancri e now have names like Jensen and after uh, and whole solar systems which are themed on particular uh, topics taking from our solar system the the idea that we have uh, this this Roman mythology um, which has carried through to things like the Juno mission and and things like that it's a shame that they didn't choose uh, things like Harry Potter or Jane Austen (laughs) novels I think
0: but Maybe in a few centuries' time, there'll be people choosing. Yes, uh, that's right. There'll be like
1: legends then. and yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: There's also another story uh, you had about stars, about a, a very round star, which sounds like a, a odd thing to say. Uh, uh,
1: yes, that's right, and because you you tend to think of star all stars being balls and uh, being round, but actually most stars aren't round. They're slightly flattened at the poles because all stars rotate, and if uh, you know, if you take a lump of dough and you rotate it very fast, you end up with, you end up with a pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is sort of what happens with stars; they they get squashed at uh, the top and the bottom ends. Not as
0: much as pizzas do. Not right? as yeah.
1: much as pizza, no. But that's actually sort of more or less how you form planets uh, going around stars. Uh, so they get uh, squashed a little bit. Uh, but some researchers have looked at uh, a a Kepler one of kepler's uh, target stars and they found that it uh, it was quite round and so they've used it to test out a technique called uh, astroseismology which is as you think about with uh, uh, seismology it's, it's it's measuring how um, the the surface changes and uh, if there are there are a, a Quakes like you do on the Earth, uh, whether there are star quakes and that sort of thing, and how stable this thing is. So you're looking at how stable the surface is, uh, but you're also looking at uh, the thing as a whole, how round it is. So they tested out this technique, and they can uh, to to very high detail uh, now know this is that their their gold standard, if you like, for a, a well behaved spherical star, the most spherical star that they could find. And now they can use their technique for analysing stars which aren't spherical. Mm-hmm. And then we can infer a lot of uh, things from the results that they'll get from those. It has a particular impact on stars that have planets going around them. Because we can't, or almost never can we directly view a planet be, uh, going around a star other than the sun. Because they're very faint things that don't shine their own light next to something that's very, very bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've we have to rely on other techniques. So wobbling stars and uh, stars that dim just a little bit. And if you don't know whether the star's round or not, or if it has weird things going on with it, then it's very difficult to then say what the planet's like
0: that's going around it. And this is something that happens all the time in lots of scientific experiments uh, and observations. It's essentially a calibration. Yes, Except that's in right. In astronomy, our, cali- our, our, our experiment is based on um, objects which are hundreds, thousands of light years away. So we can't go and adjust them. We have to know exactly. We have to measure them very precisely. It's a, it's a exactly. very interesting problem. Sticking with, with stars and planets, there, there's some new images out recently from uh, the European Southern Observatory, um, which has an instrument on the Very Large Telescope, the uh, bizarrely named Very Large Telescope, of course, uh, a, a, an instrument called SPHERE, which is an acronym for um, something I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and that's looking at planets going around other stars and looking at them directly. You mentioned they're very hard to see because the star is very, very bright. is millions of times brighter sometimes than, than the planets. We're yeah. actually seeing them... The planet itself is very difficult, but there's one property of the star's light that differs from the planet's light. And that's that the planet we see uh, normally in these ways from the light is reflected from, the, from its star. So when we see planets in our solar system in the night sky, we're seeing the reflected light. The same as with the moon, we're seeing reflected light originating from the sun. And that reflection does something. It, it polarizes the light. So it means that the light doesn't just have a, a brightness and a color. It also has almost an orientation, a preferred orientation. The light from the star itself doesn't. And so if you can say, right, I'm going to cut out all light that doesn't have a preferred orientation, and only look at light that has this preferred orientation, this polarisation, then I can actually bring out the planet. And they also block out the light from the star right in the centre as well. Several techniques. um, They use adaptive optics to adjust the mirror to counteract the Earth's atmosphere. They use something called coronography to block out the light from the star. And then they use this polarimetry to look at the light from the the planet itself. So three very difficult things all piled into one.
1: The polarimetry is like uh, when you put sunglasses on after it's rained and you don't get glare off puddles on the road uh, and that sort of thing. So that's that's essentially what you're doing there mm. uh, because of the, this property is this slightly uh, nonsensical or, or, or counterintuitive property mm. of light.
0: Yeah, and so, and my, I've got some polarized sunglasses that are that are fun. Well, when you're driving along, or as a, maybe as a passenger in the car, it's better to look at all sorts of things that are polarized, and you can see the, the changes in their reflections. It's uh, it's good fun. In, in this in this sense, they've got some photos of uh, some stars with with disks of material going around them. You mentioned the pizza shape from from stars earlier. That gets flattened out. You end up with this disc-like material with um with almost like spiral arms forming as planets form, and little nodules as the planets start to form out of that dust. And they've got images of that that appear to be changing over the timescale between their observations. So it, there's a chance that you know, we're seeing planets forming at the, the moment, which is quite
1: amazing, yeah. really. You know, this is a process that that everybody thinks takes a long time, you know, tens of millions of years um, to get from a cloud of dust to planets. And, and but we're seeing
0: these little things just forming out of mm. the darkness. Uh, it's quite beautiful yeah and the the images are staring as well so on, on the the ESO the European Southern Observatory website there any more stories or no so I think I think that's a that's a, a good roundup of uh, of the news um we can come back to uh to earth now and actually to the other side of the world to Australia where there's a a telescope actually a radio telescope this is because astronomers look at the sky in all sorts of different ways and not just light we see with our eyes or visible light we also look at other types of light, such as radio waves, and radio telescopes often look very different to optical telescopes. They tell us lots of different things about the universe. One particular radio telescope that's uh, been in the news recently is the Murchison Wide Field Array uh, out in Western Australia, and it's the, the telescopes have produced a, a survey of the entire sky, or at least that bit you can see from Australia, called the Galactic and Extragalactic All Sky Murchison Field Wide Field Array Survey, or GLEAM <laughs> for short. And it'll stick Stick, for Gleam. stick with Gleam uh, for the time being. To find out more about the MWA, this Murchison Widefield Array, and the, the surveys produced, I spoke to Dr Natasha Hurley-Walker from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, and I began by asking her what radio astronomy tells us.
2: Radio astronomy gives us uh, a view of the high energy physics in the universe. So when you're looking with optical light, you know, you're, you're seeing stars, you're seeing the local universe, Uh, When you're looking with radio, you tend to be seeing synchrotron radiation, which comes from electrons spiraling around cosmic magnetic fields. And so you see this wherever you have in the universe plasma and magnetic fields. So things like our own galaxy, things like distant galaxies, supernova remnants, um, anything that can produce magnetic fields and electrons. So with the... With radio astronomy, we're building a a map of those sort of high-energy processes.
0: Okay, so you see, you see very different things to what happens in uh, in the night sky. Now, these are radio wave. Sorry, you see very different things to to those we see with uh, uh, optical telescopes, what you might think of as normal telescopes. And and the the telescopes you use uh, also don't generally look like uh, an optical telescope, though often they use essentially the same principles. What, What kind of radio telescopes are you using for for this?
2: So we're using actually quite a new kind of radio telescope. So traditional radio telescopes look like a collection of dishes or even just a single really big dish like uh, Arecibo, for instance. Um, Nowadays, we're exploring a new technology called Aperture Array technology. It's actually a really old technology that was used in the very first days of radio astronomy. But it's made a a comeback um, because nowadays we have supercomputers which can process the data from these telescopes. And what's pretty cool about the telescope I'm using, the Murchison Widefield Array, is that it consists of over uh, 128 uh, individual stations. So typically for a a radio telescope, you'll have maybe seven or eight, maybe 20, and you'll combine them together. Um, But with the Murchison Widefield Array, we have 128. And the processing challenge goes as the number of antennas squared. So we build up this really detailed image of the sky. We get what's called a lot of different spatial frequencies, which are the the Fourier elements on the sky. So we can see both the large scales, the medium scales, and the small scales.
0: And the way these work, you see those all at the same time, essentially, right?
2: Yeah. So other interferometers, um, for instance, the, um, the east-west uh, 15-kilometer array in Cambridge that's been upgraded now Um, the australia telescope compact array the vla they have mobile antennas so they have very large dishes and then they move those dishes around in order to sample different spatial frequencies on the sky so depending on what you're interested in like if you're interested in really tiny objects you'd move the antennas really far apart and that gives you high resolution Mm -hmm. but very low sensitivity to large-scale structures Um, and if you want to just see the large-scale structures you bring the antennas close in but with the MWA, we have the, all of these antennas spread out over about 10 square kilometers of desert. And so we can, like, in real time, correlate all of these signals and produce a pretty insane data rate, mm-hmm. which we then have the supercomputer resources to make images from.
0: Uh, one, of the, one of the other things that affects telescopes uh, of all kinds, optical and radio telescopes, is... You sort of alluded to it there that if you make something very big, if you make a telescope very big, you can see finer detail on the sky, but you, you typically also see uh, a, a very small patch of sky at any one time. And so that's meant that previous radio arrays, radio telescopes that have had lots of telescopes spread far apart, can only look at one tiny patch of the sky at a time. And so making a bigger image can take a very a big image at high resolution can take a very long time and that's really where one of your great advantages is i guess
2: it's true i mean the clue's in the name i guess it's the wide field array so the the way to get a a larger view of the sky is to build kind of ironically a smaller antenna so our antennas are only well they're not even okay our our antennas are actually clustered together in groups of what we call tiles. Mm -hmm. So they're a four by four arrangement of antennas, um, making 16 dipoles in all. And they're only about um, three meters by three meters. So they're they're quite small. (laughs) They're quite short as well. They're only about knee high, although you'll see some really dramatic images that I've taken by lying down on the ground and looking up through the dipoles. Um, So because they're small, that gives us this really wide field of view which is great um but it does come with some really extreme challenges
0: and you mentioned the processing the supercomputer processing and that's really the thing that's driven this over the last uh, well the last few years this is a very very rapidly developing field with with uh, the the mwa the Murchison wide field array is not the end point of that development it's a step on the way to other things as well so what's where's where's this whole technology going
2: Right, well the um the driver behind this is the search for the epoch of reionization. So this is a a new cosmology experiment essentially. Um I'm sure listeners will be familiar with the discovery and then the exploration of the cosmic microwave background um through the eighties, nineties and um, early two thousands. And that's given us this fantastic view on the very early universe. So just after the universe became transparent, those photons you know, left the surface of last scattering, and then they've been redshifted down to the microwave um, regime. And so we've picked up that, that cosmic microwave background. And so that told us all about that surface of last scattering. So that's very, very early in the universe. But then we really don't know what happens for quite some time. We can infer when we look around that at some point, stars and galaxies must have formed from a sort of neutral hydrogen soup. But we don't actually know when that happened or how that happened. So the aim is to probe this epoch of reionization. So basically, when the stars and galaxies reionize the neutral universe and change it from neutral to ionized. Now, that causes a change in the spin flip of the hydrogen atom.
0: So that's a very specific thing with the way the hydrogen atom interacts with the proton and electron. That's the
2: yeah, yeah. You can Google that one. I yeah, think yeah. it would take too <laughs> long to explain. <laughs> um, but basically, that signal is at one point four gigahertz. But we think it must have happened somewhere between sort of redshift eight and fifteen, which is quite a big range of time. Um, and so, therefore, it's been redshifted. So it's been stretched out in wavelength. And that actually stretches it out by about a factor of 10 um, down to the megahertz regime. So somewhere around 150 megahertz. So suddenly everyone is interested in building 150 megahertz instruments. But since we don't know the exact redshift, um, the the frequency range that people are interested in is anywhere between 50 megahertz up to 300 megahertz. Um, And so there's this there's this big drive to go to low frequencies. What's interesting about the epoch of ionization signal is similar to the cosmic microwave background, it has a particular spatial frequency. And again, we don't actually know what that spatial frequency is, but based on simulations of you know ionizing bubbles around galaxies, around stars, Um, we think that it's going to be of order a few arc minutes to up to maybe a couple of degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: So just to to give it so this this common spatial frequency means you'll, if you made made an image of this, you made a map of it, you see blobs of a a characteristic size on the sky, which is what we see in the cosmic microwave background. And and, and for a sense of scale, two degrees on the sky is, um, it's a few moons across and a few arc minutes is a fraction yep. of the size of the moon. So that, that's actually quite a wide range, as you say, of, of uh, sizes to be, to be looking for.
2: Yeah, exactly. So because we don't know exactly what sort of sizes it will have or what sort of frequency it is, suddenly there's this real drive to build telescopes which are sensitive to both a wide range of frequency and a wide range of spatial scales on the sky. So obviously the MWA is really optimised for that regime.
0: So yeah. as, a, as a result of of your your latest uh, research using using the nwa you've you've uh, made um a, a map uh, of the the sky an image of of all the sky you can see from down in australia which doesn't really overlap much with the bit of sky we can see in the, from here in the uk although we assume for cosmology that they're they're equivalent right? the 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 universe doesn't care whether you're looking south or north um but you've made this map up for these for radio wavelengths, unprecedented resolution on this kind of size scale. So what w- what results have you got? What have you seen from the maps you've made?
2: Okay, well, I'll I'll just say briefly that the reason we started this survey was because um, we wanted to completely characterize the f- foreground to the epoch of reionization. So basically everything that has happened since the epoch of reionization that has produced radio waves at low frequencies is in the way of, mm. of detecting that signal. So the the original driver for the si- survey was that we realized we would never in a million years be able to detect the EOR unless we knew what was between us and that signal. So it started out as this sort of ambitious project to survey the whole sky. And a few people were sort of like, oh, you should maybe stick to one frequency. Why don't you just stick to certain patches? I was like, no, no, this is doable. We can we can do the entire sky, as you say, visible from Australia. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a bit of an undertaking. It took about a year to do the observations, and then um, another year to come up with a reasonable data processing pipeline, um, and then another year to sort of calibrate the survey to get it onto the same flux scale as other instruments. To really work out uh, are, are the objects we're seeing really that size, do we understand our resolution, that kind of thing.
0: And that makes it scientifically um, so yeah, useful as well when you've calibrated it so other astronomers can go and use it. That's one of the big things it does. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So it's actually really useful in future for the square kilometre array because you want to calibrate your instrument. That means you want to be able to point it at the sky and know what you're looking at. And then you can take what you're seeing with the, the, the raw data, compare it against your model of what the raw data should look like, and come up with some kind of calibration solution. So this is basically the, the perfect SKA calibration survey, which is which is nice. You know, I like nice to contribute.
0: And a, the the Square Kilometre Array is going to be the similar in in nature, or bits of it will be similar in nature to what you've got there at the the Murchison Widefield Array, but tens or hundreds of times larger scale in terms of number of detectors. So it's it's a it's a much 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 more complex task. But these the the methodology to do it is I guess what you've what you've established there.
2: Yeah, we're hoping so. Certainly, um, the, the telescope's been a really great test bed for hardware, for software, for signal chains, for just operating in a desert, which has its own challenges in terms of temperature um, and remoteness. When you when you need hardware spares, I remember we cleaned out uh, Geraldton, which is the nearest town. About. Four hours drive away um, we just bought all their hard drives one day we just we need we ran out of hard drives we had to go back and raid the only computer store and just buy all of them so um, there's a lot of challenges that we've explored um, but yeah so eventually when we do build the square kilometre array the low frequency component of that will go on the same site and um, yeah it, it, they're still we're still deciding on the, the exact design of that instrument so it's very possible that the antenna will be quite different from the Murchison Widefield array they'll they should recede down to lower frequencies um, it's mo- it, it's 100% likely that it will go to much longer baselines that is to say its antennas will include um, there will be some sets of antennas which are quite far apart so it should get very very good resolution um, but we're still not sure how big the collections of antennas will be, that is to say the the stations so will we have a very wide, View of the sky, or will we have quite a narrow field of view? Uh, how many of those stations will there be? You know, will they be collected together into just a few large stations, or thousands of smaller stations? That's all being decided at the moment, um, so that's not clear yet. But we're we're generally testing the um, the ideas, and we're we've also done a lot of observations which. Uh, characterize the ionosphere.
0: You mentioned that to, to look at the epoch of reionization, you have to look at all the stuff out in out in the universe that's between us and the distant universe. Well, the ionosphere is the the local extreme of that. I guess it's it's very local. So how does a how does the ionosphere affect you?
2: Yeah. So the the ionosphere is definitely the most local and most irritating foreground. Although that said, one astronomer's foreground is another astronomer's science. So. We've had lots of really great ionospheric papers being published in the last few years. Um, So what happens with the ionosphere is that it's basically a layer of um, electrons in our atmosphere, so charged particles and electrons. And the way that affects radio waves is both to refract them, so they are bent at an angle depending on their frequency, so it's actually a a wavelength squared dependent effect, so it's chromatic, um, and also to change their polarization, so to, to to cause Faraday rotation. So for all of our distant sources, we want to understand their astronomical signals, but then these signals are distorted by the ionosphere. And because it's not just a static thing, it's constantly changing. So as the sun rises, heats up the ionosphere, it expands, you get turbulence. Mm. So the ionosphere behaves in this one couple of one kind of obvious way in the in the day there's all these layers to it which are all characterized by atmospheric physicists Um, and then as the sun sets it cools and the way it cools um, changes depending on the height that you're looking at and then that causes different kinds of turbulence and so for for those of us who are trying to observe astronomical sources it's changing the positions it's changing the polarization and um, particularly when you're looking with a wide field of view Mm. that effect can be very dramatic so on one side of your field of view the ionosphere might be distorting sources in one way but on the other side it's doing something completely different yeah. and that's very difficult to deal with
0: yeah it's uh it's it's and it's one that radio astronomers have been struggling with for well, for decades <laughs> to, uh, to yeah, fix this. yeah absolutely now when, when you, yeah. you've solved all these problems you've solved the data processing problem you've solved the calibration problem you've solved the how to deal with the ionosphere, ionosphere or you have figured out how to how to cope with that um, you've you've made this map um, you mentioned that it was about looking at the local universe which means there are nearby galaxies and stuff in it um, a uh, what's in those maps uh, and, and b how how do we as, as uh, non-radio astronomers uh, go and find them
2: okay science at last yeah so um so the survey is well the published part of the survey that i published in october um, that's a catalogue of extragalactic radio galaxies. So these are all distant galaxies, and the reason that they're visible in the radio is because of emission from their central supermassive black holes. So at the centre of every single one of these 300,000 galaxies is a supermassive black hole uh, with some kind of accretion disk. So it's it's tearing, pulling in um, nearby stars or clouds of gas. It's ripping them apart. And then that accretion disk, it, oh, well, this is something that astronomers don't still quite understand, but the accretion disk has very powerful magnetic fields. The black hole has magnetic fields. And these cause material from the accretion disk to be launched out um, along the axis of rotation of the accretion disk. So basically, from the center of every one of these galaxies, there's one or two big plumes of superheated plasma moving into space at nearly the speed of light where you've got plasma, you've got electrons, we already said you've got magnetic fields, so bing, you've got synchrotron radiation, which is visible in the radio. Mm -hmm. So I've spent the last few years building this survey of hundreds of thousands of radio galaxies, and it really hasn't been done at these frequencies before, because older instruments that were looking at these frequencies either had really terrible fields of view or really terrible resolution, or both. Um, and so you only got a very low resolution image of the sky, um, or you couldn't really tell where your sources were. And now this is a really fantastic high resolution, um, image, well, as high as you can get at low frequencies at the moment. Um, and also what's very cool is because our telescope has this very wide bandwidth, which we need to search for the epoch of realisation. Um, it means that for every radio source, I've measured its, uh, flux density between, 72 and 231 megahertz so not just a single frequency but 20 different frequencies and that's pretty much unheard of for radio surveys that just has never been done before
0: so if we take an analogy with 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 optical astronomy there i mean it's the equivalent of saying, "Well, there's a galaxy there. I know how bright it is." is one thing, but then in optical astronomy, using using visible light, the moment you start looking at what color is it and and uh, and and how it looks at different colors at different wavelengths of optical light, you can really start to check out what it's made of, how old it is, whether it's forming stars. There's an awful lot more information there than just from just its brightness. So that that wavelength range, that sort of color range, if you like, is really important for understanding these galaxies.
2: Exactly, exactly. So um, as you're saying about galaxies having different colors, um, I've essentially made a radio color image of the universe, which is really very pretty as well, I have to say. It's not just physically interesting. It's very beautiful. Um, And so as an example for how that color helps us understand the universe, um, in this 300,000 radio galaxies, most of them appear in radio color, Um, as kind of orange. So that is to say they are bright at the low frequencies and dim at the higher frequencies. Mm. So if you imagine the low frequencies are red and the high frequencies are blue, they look kind of orangey red. Um, But every so often there's a blue source. So about one to two percent of these um, radio galaxies are actually blue. And so that means they're bright at the high frequencies and dim at the low frequencies. So they look kind of blue. Now, that actually tells us about the environment around the supermassive black hole. So basically as those jets are launched, if they are surrounded by like a dense medium that will preferentially absorb the lowest frequencies and let the high frequencies out. And so that makes it appear blue. And we think that that happens um, either in rich clusters of galaxies or possibly just when the jet is starting out and it hasn't punched through all of the material around the host galaxy. Mm-hmm. So um, by combining this particular sample with other wavelengths of data, we can really start to understand the physics of like, how black holes produce jets and why do some produce jets and others don't.
0: So really, really get into the, the the grips of these individual galaxies and, and seeing how they, how they evolve. So it's, there's a place where we can go online to, to actually look at these maps. You mentioned that they're, they're, they're beautiful maps. There's all the colors of the galaxies. So how do how we go and find this online?
2: So there's two different ways. So you can go to gleamoscope.icra.org, which I constructed using your fantastic chromoscope framework. Um, and basically it's uh, an interactive viewer. You can scroll around and see um, lots of different frequencies, so the optical, the X-ray, the gamma, I got all from the Chromoscope website, but I have put in the Glean survey as a new view on the radio, and so you can scroll around about 75% of the sky. Unfortunately, I could not survey the Northern Hemisphere because I can't see it. It's a planet in the way. But you can survey, yes, the the Earth is in the way. Um, but you can scroll around the rest of the sky, you can zoom in, you can right click and search um, for different objects uh, on Simbad, uh, an astronomical website, and um, yeah, just generally have a play. Um, the other way you can do it is if you have an Android phone, and I apologise to all the iPhone users out there, um, you can go to the Google Play Store and you can look for the Gleam survey, and this is an app that we developed um, where basically it's, it's all of Gleam, um, and you can look around by moving your mobile phone. Um, and we're working now on like a VR version. So you would be able to change frequencies and um, have the have the sky appear where it should do. At the moment, I have to say the app, basically it's as if you're floating in space with your head towards the North Pole and your feet towards the South. And you're just where the earth would be. And then you're seeing the radio sky around you. Um, so yeah, they're both pretty cool. Um, I, I just sort of felt that, it was important to let people see this survey since essentially science is a, you know, taxpayer funded um, kind of quest for knowledge for everybody, not just for those of us, you know, actually sitting behind our computers tapping away. But if I can give this back to the world and have people see it, I thought I should definitely do that. So there's two different ways of checking it out. Um, yeah. Hope people have a look.
0: And I think one of the things we found when, when we made Chromoscope initially, which is a sort of broad range of wavelengths from gamma ray to radio, as you mentioned, we we found stuff that um, we didn't. I mean, the astronomical community may have well existed, but we found stuff that we didn't know was there. You get some fascinating ways of looking at the sky when you when you can actually play around with it, which is uh, re- which is really good fun. And having looked at the gleamoscope, uh, the gleam specific version, it really is uh, uh, wonderful to to see and to and to browse around. So. Uh, it looks great
2: yeah yeah i'm really pleased with it and um, we even made the the new york times which was nice they i find this a little bit ironic but they in their printed weekend version they had a an article about the online viewer which was somewhat baffling because on the online version you could use the online viewer but then they printed it into the newspaper so just had a bit of a <laughs> bit of a 21st century confusion moment there. Sort of, does that really make sense? Well, yeah. Anyway, New York Times, that was good. And of course, it, it came up on Reddit, and people were already saying, "Oh, well, I want it to do this. I want it to do that." So I was like, "Well, go to GitHub, <laughs> yeah. download it, and yeah. you know, if you want to, you can make it, make it, do what you want it to do." <laughs>
0: right. Excellent, good stuff. Um, well it's it's as I said it's a remarkable uh, image to sort of go and look and browse around and and explore it's a wonderful science and as you mentioned earlier is on the way to um, uncovering what happened to the the the, the formation of the first uh, stars and galaxies is uh, uh in a, a really key stepping point to understanding um, what was going on in the early universe so um Lots to do, and I, I wish you luck with, with continuing uh, this research and working towards that square kilometre array in a, in a decade or so.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully sooner, but I, don't, help, don't, don't um, ask me for a timeline. We'll see. Um, yeah. I hope to work on, on it all, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think the survey's been a lot of fun, and um, we're looking forward to using a, an expanded version of the MWA um, to do an even bigger and better survey, So yeah, I hope it's great fun for people to play around with. And it's already proving crazy useful for the astronomical community. Thanks a lot, Chris. All right, Natasha, thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Reese Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.